so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. This week, we'll hear from Tony Evans about racial reconciliation. To say you are a black Christian or a white Christian makes black and white an adjective. It makes Christian a noun. The job of an adjective is to modify a noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or culture in the advertisement position, you must keep changing the noun to reflect the adjective since the job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So if I say I'm a black Christian, I've got to always reshape Christian to look black. If I say I'm a white Christian, I've got to always manipulate Christian to look white because I put my culture, color, and class in the adjectival framework. But if I put my Christianity in the adjectival framework, and put my color, class, or culture in the noun position, then I always adjust my color, class, and culture to the adjective of my faith and not to the noun of my humanity. Tony Evans is a spiritual giant and a mentor to many through his ministry, especially when it comes to the area of racial reconciliation. At the ERLC's Leadership Summit, his message titled, Oneness Embraced, Racial Reconciliation, the Kingdom, and Justice, painted a hopeful picture of how God will unite His church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We hope this message gives you a greater heart for diversity. It is an honor to be able to join those who have gathered together to uh, call this special convening on a most delicate and yet necessary subject, that of the ever-abiding issue of race that continues to uh, plague the national discourse in our country and in our culture. And so it is an honor to be able to join with friends and join you for this subject. I want to get right into it today, and I want to call your attention to an event in the life of our Lord which addresses this situation. Time will not allow us to go as deeply as I would want to go. We have, when I wrote the book on race, Oneness Embraced, we went into the various vicissitudes of our discussion today, but I'd like to approach this more didactically than homiletically from the standpoint of giving a explanation of this text and this story in the life of our Lord and the extraction of biblical, theological, and cultural principles that that come out of it for, for the purposes for which we have gathered. The overarching statement that I want to make is that In this passage, we find out 
how Jesus reversed 800 years of racial discord in less than 24 hours. Over 800 years of racial discord was reversed in 24 hours. I take a different template than many. I do not believe that the racial problem is as nearly complex or difficult to resolve as we have made it. It is my suggestion that it has only become difficult because the church refuses the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture. So in less than 24 hours, our Lord solves a problem that existed since 722 B.C. When Assyria, as part of God's judgment, invaded Israel, took some of the Jews to Assyria, left some of the Assyrians, and there was interracial relationships producing a half-breed race known as the Samaritans. This created a cultural, racial, religious, relational divide as the Jews recognized the Samaritans as Samaritan dogs. They were the rejected in our story. We begin this chapter with the popularity of Jesus. It introduces the fact that Jesus is baptizing more people than John and has become the envy of the Pharisees. At this point, not wanting to confront or be confronted with them, he changes his location. And in an editorial note by the disciple to become apostle John, we read in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria in going from Judea to Galilee. Now, that's an editorial Johannine pun. You see, Judea to the south, Galilee to the north, Samaria in the middle, in order to go from Judea to, to Galilee, you had to pass through Samaria unless you were an Orthodox Jew. Because an Orthodox Jew, in order to avoid the Samaritan dogs, would go to the outskirts of Samaria via Paria up into Galilee so that he would not have to cross the railroad tracks and connect with the Samaritans who lived in Samaria, named after them. The reason why Jesus had to pass through Samaria is he had an appointment at 12 noon. It was an appointment with a Samaritan woman. He meets the woman at the well, but not any well. We're told he meets her at a specific well. There are many wells, that's how they got their water, but we're told that he meets her at a well described this well, way verse Five, he came near to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So this is not any well. This is this well has a legacy to it, a longevity to it. Jacob gave to his son Joseph on this parcel of land located in this vicinity of Sychar was a specific well in that location that Jesus chose to meet the foreigner. Now, why this well? Well, he's actually told us. You see, 
the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, but they both loved Jacob. For Jacob was the father of the Jews and the Samaritans. If you went into a Samaritan home, you would have found a Pentateuch Bible. They, did, they rejected the rest of the Old Testament, but they accepted the Pentateuch. Jacob is in the Pentateuch. Of course, Jacob is in the Pentateuch for the Jews. So Jesus met her on common ground. He met her at a place of agreement. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews. But since they both loved Jacob, that's where he stopped. He met her at the place of common ground. Now, the reason he met her at the place of common ground was because he was there because there was a spiritual need. The spiritual need drove him having to pass through Samaria and meeting her at a place they could both agree on. And that is Jacob. He meets her there. And when he meets her there, he does something very interesting. He says, give me to drink. He says, I'm thirsty. I've traveled a long way. You're here to draw water. Can I have some water? Will you, will you give me something to drink? When he asks for something to drink, we're given another editorial note in verse 8. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now that's a major part of the story. Just hold on to it in your cerebrium area and we will pick that up in a moment. The disciples had gone into town to buy food. So now it's just Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He's asking for a drink and the woman is stupefied and mesmerized. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, verse 9, how is it you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So question number one is, how did she know he was Jew? He doesn't say he's Jewish. He doesn't declare anything that's uniquely Jewish. So evidently, he was obviously Jewish whether it was by garb or accent or whatever it was about him, simply by looking at him and hearing him say, give me the drink, bam, she recognized he's Jewish, which means that Jesus didn't stop being who he was to read somebody else. He didn't give up his Jewish history. He didn't give up his Jewish heritage. He didn't give up his Jewish background. He didn't give up his Jewish uh, uh, train. He didn't give up anything that would make him visibly Jewish. He didn't fake it to make it. He didn't become something that he was not to reach somebody who was different than he was. But what caught her attention was even though he looked Jewish, talked Jewish, he wasn't acting Jewish. Because he was willing to put his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup. He was not going to let the prejudices of everybody else in his race inform what he did. He was going to look how he looked, act like he act, acted, but he was not going to succumb to the 800 years of racial prejudice that had defined their relationship. He was going to function differently than any other Jewish person this woman had ever run into for her life. And that caused her to stop, to pause. Point being, God is not asking you to stop being who you are to reach somebody different than who you are. 
God is not asking blacks to be, be whites or whites to be blacks. He's asking both to be biblical. He's saying, I want you to embrace your uniqueness, not give it up, not throw it away, not discard it, not feel like you have to go to, to uh, a first and change your clothes so you can relate to the Samaritan woman. I just want you to act unlike they expect you to act. And she said, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Don't you know that's not how we roll up in here, up in here? Don't you know that in this neighborhood, in this community, we don't cross fraternize that way? Don't you understand that? You see, what a lot of people want to do is they want to carve out this compartment in another person called the soul. Pull it from the individual. Recite to it the four spiritual laws while having nothing to do with the person whose soul it came out of. Give them the gospel so now that the soul can go to heaven. Take the soul that's now saved, put it back in the person, have nothing to do with the person, but at least I gave them the gospel. But Jesus flipped the script. He says, before I give you the gospel, I'm a drink from your cup. I'm going to gain the right to share the good news by letting you know I'm not skipping your person to this invisible part of you called your soul. Now, I'm not going to just fraternize with you socially because that's another gospel. But what I am going to do is let you know through my social intercourse that my willingness to drink from your cup is an access for sharing with you the good news, which he will share with her shortly. So he reaches a person with a soul and he does it socially while recognizing that there's a theological, spiritual issue on the table. So Jesus does not let his history and his background get in the way of meeting this woman on common ground. God wants you to embrace your uniqueness for the purposes of his kingdom, not to deny it, not to, as in a marriage, the man is still a male, the woman is still a female, but to allow those differences to engage to a whole nother level of relationship. We must put our color and our culture in the right frame. To say you are a black Christian or a white Christian makes black and white an adjective. It makes Christian a noun. The job of an adjective is to modify a noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or culture in the advertisal position, you must keep changing the noun to reflect the adjective since the job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So if I say I'm a black Christian, I've got to always reshape Christian to look black. If I say I'm a white Christian, I've got to always manipulate Christian to look white because I put my culture, color, and class in the adjectival framework. But if I put my Christianity in the adjectival framework and put my color, class, or culture in the noun position, then I always adjust my color, class, and culture to the adjective of my faith and not to the noun of my humanity. In other words, our humanity must be defined by our Christianity. We've lived in a culture where we've defined our Christianity by our culture. And that has led to the confusion today. God is not asking 
you to like soul music and thank God he's not asking me to like country and western. He's not asking you to be me or me to be you. He's just saying both of us need to be like him. And so the point of reference is different. Jesus then goes on. Because he was willing to drink out of her cup, he has now earned the right to take a normal discussion about water and turn it into a discussion about eternal life. He says to her, if you knew the water that I was offering, it would bubble up into you like a well bringing to you eternal life. Well, this woman is still thinking naturally and she wants to know, well, where can I get this well of water so I don't have to come here at noon every day? She says, uh, I, I, I don't understand. I'm not following this. So Jesus wants to go deeper with her now that he is socially communicating with her. He says, go call your husband in verse 16. She says, well, I, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you got that right. You've had five. And guess what I know about you and Mr. Jones? Y'all got a thing going on. The one you have now is not your own. So he has now gone from drinking water to her, her immoral lifestyle. He has gone now from a discussion about how he looked and talked to discussing the issue at hand, her sin. And now with that issue on the floor and him confronting what he knows about her nature, she seeks to change the subject because she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I guess so. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. So now she wants to have a conversation about where you go to church. Our fathers my people, history, background, and heritage. This is where we go to church. But then she goes on to say, you people, a racial slur if I ever heard one, you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So we got different histories. Jesus behind me is Mount Gerzium where the Samaritan temple is located and my daddy told me, girl, if you want to go to church, that's where you go. If you want to worship God, that's where you go. And my daddy told me that because my granddaddy told my daddy who told me that. And my great-granddaddy told my granddaddy who told my daddy who told me that. Because she says, our father is plural. Which means my great-great-granddaddy taught my great-granddaddy who taught my granddaddy who taught my daddy. I was raised like this. This is the way I was raised. This is my history, heritage, background. You people were raised different. Y'all fathers taught you. Your granddaddy taught your daddy who taught you. So we were raised different. Now, when Jesus brought up drinking out of her cup and she noticed he was different, he never discussed the racial difference she brought up. The Jews don't deal with the Samaritans. He never, he never engaged that. But when she brought his father into the racial discussion, he now is no longer silent. Because as long as we on the human level, that's that we, we, I only have to take that any further. 
But now that you bring my daddy into your history, my history, and this racial uh, 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 environment that we're in, I, I, I got to say something Jesus says. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You and your daddy was wrong. Your granddaddy who taught your daddy was wrong. Your great-granddaddy who taught your granddaddy who taught your daddy was wrong because you worship what you do not know. You're wrong. Why are you wrong? Because you brought my daddy in the conversation and that has to do with what's right and wrong, not what's Jewish or Samaritan. And he says, you worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. God is spirit, verse 24. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, if you're going to worship God, location is not the first question. History is not the first question. Background is not the first question. He says, spirit and truth is the first issue. Right attitude commensurate with right information. Truth is an absolute standard by which reality is measured. Black is only beautiful when it's biblical, and white is only right when it agrees with holy writ. Unless it conforms to spirit, attitude, and truth, it is illegitimate even if you got it from your daddy even if it was taught from your granddaddy, even if it was the history of your hip background, culture, all of that's wrong. And I'm not, going to, I'm not going to delay clarifying that because you brought my father into this discussion. So I've got to clarify that. What we are missing today in addressing this issue and the reason why it's taking forever to fix it is because we have abandoned the truth in favor of culture. We have decided that the culture will have the last word and the truth will come along as it can, rather than the truth dragging the culture. That, that would change it overnight. Reminds me of a true biblical reality in Galatians 2. When Peter is eating pork chops with the Gentiles, you remember, Peter had devotions in Acts 10 and he sees his sheep come down from heaven with all manner of unclean animals on it. And when the sheep comes down, he says, no, Lord, never, not me, not me. That's unclean. To which God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. Don't you do that. He then is sent to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, to share the gospel. Cornelius and, and the house becomes born again and, and the Holy Spirit just comes down and Peter discovers these folk know how to cook. <laughs> Remember, he'd never had pork chops, ham hocks, chitlins, and pig feet. He'd never had that. He'd never had that. But now God has given him permission from his devotions to eat all of this good food. So in Galatians 2, he's at the soul shack. He's then crossed the tracks, gone to the other side of town, and he says he's eating with the Gentiles. The problem occurs, however, when some of his boys from the hood show up 
it says some Jews showed up. And they wondered why our pastor Peter is eating with them people. Peter, now we know you, you, you the man in Jerusalem. We got that. Now we have to live with them in heaven. That don't mean we have to fraternize with them on earth. Peter was so intimidated, beginning in Galatians 2, verse 11, by the presence of his brothers who showed up, who he did not want to offend, that he said he pushed back his chair and removed himself from his Gentile brothers. A mist in the pulpit leads to a fog in the pew. So it says that the rest of the Jews who were with Peter pushed their chairs back and got up and left the Gentiles too because Pastor Peter left them. It got so bad that Galatians 2 says that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Not my boy Barney. Anybody but Barney. Why does he highlight Barnabas? Because Barnabas was born in Cyprus. Cyprus is a Gentile colony. So he was born among Gentiles, went to school with Gentiles, played ball with Gentiles. But that's how bad racism is. It'll make a good man bad. So that even Barnabas was carried away, swept up by the emotion of the moment of seeing all of his Jewish brothers, including Pastor Peter, back away from the Gentiles. So you can imagine how the Gentiles now feel. Peter, you were good enough to eat with us till your people showed up. But when your people showed up, you were no longer good enough to eat with us and you have removed yourself, dividing the church. Peter and the Jewish brethren would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for one thing. Paul showed up too. Paul says, and when I saw, says, when I saw that they acted not in concert with the truth of the gospel, I condemned Peter before them all. Say what? You condemn Peter in front of all of them, in front of the Gentiles, in front of the Jews. You embarrass a fellow pastor in front of all of them. Yes, because he acted a fool in public. So I'm going to correct him in public. He says, and what I'm going to correct him with is the truth. And it is the gospel truth. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm confused. I thought the gospel was the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's that got to do with who I eat with? No, that's the content of the gospel. But you have to understand the gospel has more than content, it has scope. The the content of the gospel is narrow. The death and resurrection for sin by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the content. Oh, but the scope is much bigger. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says you are sanctified by the gospel. So the gospel that saves changes how you function because in saving you, he took the differences and made them part of one body. So when you split the body illegitimately, you have offended the gospel and you have uh, kicked the truth in the teeth. Peter, you embarrassed the truth. Because the truth is, when these Gentile believers became Christians, they became one with us. And you are creating an illegitimate division in the family of God. 
He confronted Peter, the apostle, or the one who had opened the doors of the church publicly. That's how serious this sin was. We had a guy in our church in Dallas. Because more and more Anglos have been coming to our church, he came up to me one day and he said, you know, I'm a little bothered because we got, we got too many whites coming to the church. He said, you know how they are. They're going to come in and try to take over and all that stuff. Well, I said, you better keep winning blacks to Christ then so we all outnumber them. <laughs> he said, well, I think I'm going to have to leave. I said, bye. This wasn't no long conversation. I didn't offer him no sensitivity sessions. We weren't going to do any reconciliation workshops. I'm going to do all that. Look, when you come into the church of Jesus Christ, you adjust. You do not ask God and his kingdom and his word to adjust. You adjust. Jesus told the woman to judge. Now, let me, let me be a little sensitive. Maybe he had some background issues. Maybe he had some negative things. Maybe he had run into some racism. I can be sensitive to work you through that. However, while we work you through that, you must adjust your feet. Do not expect the church to adjust to you. And we've been adjusting the folks' histories and background and how their mama raised them and how their grandmama raised them. No, Jesus told this woman, your daddy was wrong. Because we're dealing with the truth. We have allowed in the church of Jesus Christ an illegitimate division that has kept God at bay. Okay, so let me explain this. God will not function in an environment of disunity. Because it is against his nature. You see, we believe in the triune God, one God composed of three co-equal persons who is one in essence, the yet distinct in personality, one God, three co-equal persons, and they're always on the same page except on the cross. So they're always in sync with one another. So to invite him to a place where there is not in syncness is to ask him to contradict himself and he can't contradict himself. Because he is simplicity in nature. So since he can't contradict himself, it is a flawed invitation. So he won't go. Because he's unwelcome. So actually, the division in America is being controlled by the church. That is, our illegitimate division along racial, class, and cultural lines is saying, God, stay away, even though we're inviting you to come. Unless the truth rules, all this other talk about racial reconciliation is a waste of my time and your time. Because it don't take that long when you're operating on an absolute standard. But when the culture and your daddy and your granddaddy has some say-so, it is going to interfere with the plan of God. So now people are satisfied with reconciliation events that don't produce any real reconciliation. And so... Another division that affects race is the division of politics. Most of the Anglos in here are probably Republican. You're probably Republican out of moral concerns. The definition of marriage, abortion, uh, you know, and, and, and other factors. But, 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 but moral concerns will drive a lot of that. Most of the African Americans in here are Democrats. They're Democrats because they believe that the Democratic Party is more sensitive to justice-related issues. Well, I'd like to suggest to both of you that God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants, okay? 
like Joshua, when Joshua came out and was surveying the walls of Jericho. And uh, he sees this captain with battle array on, leading this huge army. And Joshua's mama didn't raise no dummy. Whose side are you on? You on our side? You going to help us or you on their side? You going to help them? The officer said, hey, you got it confused. I'm neither, you the people of God, but I'm neither on your side, nor am I on their side. I'm captain of the Lord's army. I didn't come to take sides. I come to take over. <laughs> I, I, I didn't come to be part of your political debate. All you can be as a Christian is Republican light or Democrat light. Because when you come out of that booth, you're supposed to be kingdom minded. You're supposed to be serving one king and one authority. And sometimes that means this group is right and that group is right, but it doesn't matter because I'm obligated to another king and another kingdom. And so he says, lady, it's going to be spirit and truth. Well, guess what she says? She says, she says that when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, he's going he's gonna to take care of that. He's going to declare all things, verse 25. Isn't that what evangelicals say? When Jesus come back, it's all going to be when Jesus come back. Jesus says, I'm already here, woman. She says, I'm already talking to you. So let's not wait for a rapture and a millennial kingdom and an eternal state. To fix a problem, Jesus says, I'm here now. Woman gets all excited. So she's getting ready to make her way to town to say to the men, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He only told her one thing she had done, but I guess that's the only thing she'd ever done. Okay, now you remember, I told you the disciples went into town to buy food. Right? Verse 8. Well, now they're on their way back. And they're coming back, and when they come back, they sing to one another. You know, he's talking to he's talking to this woman. Disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, what's bothering them is not that he's talking to a female. They've seen him talk to Mary, Martha. Sophonician woman, they've seen him talk to plenty of females. What's messing with them is he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Which now tells you why he sent them in the town, by town to buy food. He could never do the father's business with these racists hanging around. He didn't let the racism of others stop him from doing what he was supposed to do. He didn't let the congregation stop him from doing what he was supposed to do. He didn't let the convention stop him from doing what he was supposed to do. So he said, if you're not with me, y'all go buy lunch. I'm about the father's business. So they come back. They come back and they say, um, it's, uh, we got some food. Now it's about a five mile walk from Jacob's well to Sychar. So they went and got some church's chicken. Yeah, because that's the gospel bird. And they came back and they say, Rabbi, eat. He says, I've already eaten. I have food to eat that you know not of. And the disciples said, what? You sent us into town to buy food. We didn't walk 10 miles to buy you lunch and you've already eaten? You got to be kidding me. Jesus said, let me explain. Verse 35, don't say four months and then comes the harvest. He says, if you'll look up, you'll see the fields are already ripe unto harvest. 
Or what is he talking about? He's talking about all the Samaritan men, verse 30, who were coming to him. So guess what Jesus did? He gave them a practical program for cross-racial engagement. And don't say it's four months and it's going to happen. If you'll look real close, you'll see it's ready to happen right now. So he gave them a practicum. He said, let's don't talk about race. Let's don't just engage race. Let's don't just have a seminar on race. We got a project. We got Samaritan men. Now, you got two options here. You got a major evangelistic opportunity or a race riot. Because Peter would cut off your ears quick as talk to you. So you got, you, got, you got one of these scenarios that can break out here at any moment. So Jesus said, stop putting it off. Stop delaying it. Next year, one day. That, that, forget all that postponement stuff. He says, if you look right now, you'll see the fields are ready. So you got all these men coming. All these men coming. He had just given them each one of them a track and said, gentlemen, let's go to work. Let's get the gospel out. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because it says, when the Samaritans, verse 40, came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. Wait a minute. He spent the weekend in the hood? He spent the weekend with them? I mean, now, when we started this story earlier in the day at 12 o'clock noon, Jesus meets her on common ground, and the woman makes it clear that we don't hook up. Jews and Samaritans are going to get along before the day is over. He has been invited to stay with them. How can all that happen in a day when it's been going on for 800 years? Because Jesus was about his father's business. He wasn't trying to please this group and that group and trying to make everybody happy. He was taking a stand based on the authority of God's word. And when you do that, it doesn't take long. This, this, this is ridiculous. It is ridiculous outside of the church, but it's tragic inside of the church. That story about uh, uh, Peter and Paul and, 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 and the Gentiles. You know, when, those of you who get the book, Oneness Embrace in the Back, and, and I sign it, I'm going to sign it, Tony Evans, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, as Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh of the Son, uh, name, uh, the Son of God who gave himself for me, loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, well, a lot of people who preach that great verse, the great summary verse of your identity in Christ, don't understand is that verse comes at the end of that story. So the verse, the greatest verse on your identity in Christ in the Bible comes at the end of a racial incident. It is Paul telling Peter, Peter, you forgot who you are. Let me tell you who I am. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live the life which I now live. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I am. That's who you're supposed to be. So let's get to who you're supposed to be and stop being what the Jews declare you are. That's where that verse is. So it is absolutely time that we stop taking all this time. I went to Ferguson. They asked me to come to Ferguson. We pulled the churches together on our three-point plan through the Urban Alternative. We have a three-point plan we're taking across the nation. Point one, 
all the churches in Ferguson and, and every community in America. You come together for a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly was a sacred gathering. Sacred gatherings were called when God's people were out of whack. God was nowhere to be found and they needed the return of God's manifest presence in the midst of his people because they had departed from him. And so all through the Old Testament and even on the day of Pentecost, it was a solemn assembly, a sacred gathering calling for the manifest, unified return of God's presence to the midst of his people. But then that should usher in good works, drinking out of folks' cups. And so we train churches how to adopt public schools. If every group of churches in every community adopted every public school and provided good works, mentoring, tutoring, family support services to the at-risk students, you would touch the whole community because those are all the kids and all the parents. So that would give you church, school, and family. And church, school, and family is the hub of every community, and you don't have to create anything new. So then when you come together for God and you come together for good, now you can have a unified voice to speak to the issues that come up in your community and they will have to come to you first because you become unified and you're too big a voice to ignore. They can ignore us because they know we're never going to come together. So it's a church over here. We'll pick them all. Church over here, church over there, church over there, church over there. So there is no unified voice. We're going to call for a solemn assembly for over the whole nation so that the all, that every evangelical church at the same time can invoke God's return. Because trust me, his manifest presence is not in the church today. His presence is everywhere, but his manifest presence, that's where he shows off. It can't be seen. How can we have? All these churches on all these corners with all these preachers and all these members and all these buildings and all these programs and all this activity and still have all this mess. There's a dead monkey on the line somewhere. And God will not skip the church house to fix the White House. He will check with the church house before he ever says anything to the White House. Your solutions, my solutions won't come in on Air Force One. They're going to come in because God's people decided to stop taking years to do something that takes a day. My time is up. Let me close. When my wife makes me a sandwich, she always knows to put mayonnaise on it. It's always mayonnaise. Unless it's a hot dog, I'm not a mustard guy. I'm a mayonnaise guy. So she'll always put mayonnaise on it. Now mayonnaise is very interesting because mayonnaise is made up of two ingredients that can't get along. Oil and water. Mayonnaise is full of oil and water. And no matter how hard you try, they're not going to get along. They have been built not to get along. And you can plan it, you can stir it, you can mix it, you can do it. And as soon as you, soon as you come out of trying to force them things together, they're going to go back to their own, they're going to split open because they don't get along. That is unless they're emulsified. Emulsification is the process of taking elements that do not naturally integrate and pulling them together so that they can work together. So the reason I love mayonnaise is because of the process of emulsification. And mayonnaise is emulsified by egg. And the way it works is when you put egg in the midst of oil and water, part of the egg grabs the oil. The other part of the egg grabs the water and the egg jerks the two together so I can eat my sandwich and have my mayonnaise. The gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the emulsifier. Grabbing a black Christian and a white Christian, a red Christian and a yellow Christian, a Baptist and a Methodist, a Pentecostal. He's able to pull them together when you understand that the gospel 
can change an environment and it can do it in a day. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. For more information about racial reconciliation, visit ERLC.com. And join us next week as we hear about gender identity issues.